Thanks for listening to The Vine's podcast. The Vine is a church in Austin, Texas, with the simple goal of following Jesus together. And we hope this message helps you in doing just that. Our scripture reading today comes from John chapter 3, verses 22 through 30. After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and baptized. Now John also was baptizing near Aenon, near Salem, because there had been plenty of water, and people were coming and being baptized. This was before John was put in prison. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over a matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he's baptizing and everyone is going to him. To this, John replied, A person can receive only what is given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and is now complete. He must become greater. I must become less. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We are in the second week of a series called Unsubscribe, where we are considering uh, in these five weeks the different influences, habits, and messages that we are receiving that are influencing us and perhaps holding us back from living freely and fully. A theme first for this, uh, for this series is uh, from Proverbs 4.23, Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. So in this series, we're going to considering what are the messages and the influences that are affecting our hearts. If truly, if all of our life flows from our hearts, what are the things that are holding ourselves, our hearts back? What's, what's weighing down our hearts and, 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 and making it difficult for us to fully know and follow and love Jesus? Last week, we talked about unsubscribing from a hurried life, how the frantic pace in which many of us live is contrary to the way of Jesus and the calling that Jesus gives us. This week, we're going to look at something very different. We're going to look at the, the problems of comparison, because the comparison trap truly is something I believe many of us need to unsubscribe from. The root of comparison is, is a way in which we place value on our life or other people's lives. We tie our self-worth to the value we place on other people's lives, their belongings, their status. And comparison can be incredibly toxic. It can be incredibly toxic for our life with Jesus and toxic within the community of God's people. As I've thought about the, the way in which comparison meets us in our life, there's, it actually comes in different forms in many ways, due to however most uh, deeply affects our personality. It's almost like comparison tries to find the most destructive form as possible to meet us in our life. And here are a couple examples. So comparison could look like envy. Simply put, for many of us, we might struggle with comparison by longing to have that which other people have. So to have that thing or hold that position or have that experience, all of this fuels jealousy and envy. I remember visiting a friend who had this beautiful home in West Austin. And uh, I remember leaving his home and driving back. And this is when I, we used to live in East Austin. And I would drive back to East Austin 
and just noticed like the telephone lines and the power line just like as like a web over the streets and uh why am I living here why does my neighbor have a car in their front yard on center blocks they I never seen them work on it and why is there a couch on our front porch are we lounging out there like just immediately I was like oh just so just uh jealous of other people's experience and degrading my own home in that way and it was interesting I was talking to that friend later on and he was actually sharing with me his struggle when he goes, comes home after visiting his friend with a nicer, in a bigger home, in a better neighborhood. How he, even my friend, how he pulls into his garage and gets so annoyed because he can't fully open his car door in his garage without hitting stuff. And so he kind of slides out and then he has to fight this temptation to go in his front yard and just spend five minutes just throwing rocks at his house. And this is the problem of, of jealousy and envy is it actually holds us back from delighting the gifts that God's given us. We know the phrase that uh, comparison is the thief of joy. Comparison is the thief of joy. It robs us of joy. We know that to be true in our life. We are people that are afflicted with comparison. And maybe it's not uh, uh, where you live. Maybe it's not your home, but maybe it's that corner office. Or maybe you look with envy of that relationship or that vacation that you just saw on social media. It's, and speaking of social media, there seems like nothing that's fueling comparison in our generation, our culture, than the use of social media. We now have these windows into other people's lives. We see these incredible no-filter pictures of that proposal or that birth announcement or that new car, and we immediately, as we are like voyeuristic on other people's lives, as soon as we see these things, we cannot fight the temptation to reevaluate our own life by what we see in other people's lives. The child that we wish that we could have or carry to birth, the job that we were passed up for, the friendships that we wish that we had, and you click off your phone and you look around your life, and for me, with pistachio shells all over my belly on the couch, and I'm like, just feel just less than we know that social media is not real life. It's a curated pr- presentation of someone's life, but it doesn't feel that way for us. It just gives way to comparison. And envy and jealousy is a common trap in the modern life. A wisdom saying from our scripture and in Proverbs, this is Proverbs 14.30, says this, A sound heart, remember, we're talking about the heart, guarding the heart. A sound heart, is, or a heart at peace, is life to the body. But envy is rottenness to the bones. This is what envy does. It, it, it rottens our whole being. Our whole being becomes rotten with envy. And that's just what happens. So that's one version of comparison. It gives way to jealousy and envy. For other people, jeal- uh, comparison looks like this. It's a different form of comparison. Some of us actually use comparison as a means of validating our life or our status. So if we feel insecure, we just try to find someone who's a little bit worse off than us to kind of bolster and buoy our own self-worth. Like, at least I'm not that bad as that person. Or In doing that, we feel like our sense of value is, is buoyed or something like that. And it sounds heartless, but we actually, we all do it. Even pastors do it. I actually really dislike going to pastors' conferences. Uh, Because they're probably like a lot of your own conferences, and it just feels like we're just 
like pulling out measuring sticks on each other. Like, oh, okay. So you meet someone, and this is my least favorite thing about a pastor's conference. 20 seconds into it. So uh, how many people are you running? <laughs> well, you know, and then you kind of, as pastors, this is like, this is somehow a measuring stool for like how great your life is. Is how many people, oh, well, you know, we have like, you know, about 130 adults and about 50 kids. So like we run like 180. But our church, you know, they come like, you know, one and a half times a month. So that's more like, we have like a congregation of 300. What about you? What are you running? You know, it's like, oh, you find someone. And even if they have a larger church, you're like, that bozo has that church? Oh, man. What if I lived in that small town? You know, it's like this weird comparison trap. We're trying to do that. I'm actually going, I'm going to go, the, I'm going to do the opposite thing. I'm going to start at these things. When, how many are you running, Mark? I go, well, at 10 o'clock when our church service starts, I run about 11 people. <laughs> 11 people. And they're all guests. They're all guests. And they're not, they're not going to come back. They're not going to come back. We all do this. We find solace in finding people a couple rungs down on the ladder from us. You know, we, we might not say it out loud, but this is what we do. At least, at least our kids aren't that crazy. Or at least we have a little bit more than them, or at least my failure wasn't as huge. And as we do this, pride starts fueling our hearts and our souls, rottenness to the bones. I think all sin stirs God's heart, but there's something unique about pride. When we bolster our self-worth and value by devaluing other people, there's something really against the way of God, the way of Christ without, the way we objectify others and find solace in other people's hardships. I'm reminded of 1 Peter 5, 5. It says this, that God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. For those of us who use comparison in this means, it's just we need to know that this is not favored by God. When we, we need to remember that we follow Jesus who never used the misfortune of other people as a means of value to make himself greater. But instead, for Jesus' life, the misfortune of other people provoked nothing but compassion and solidarity and empathy and grace and mercy. Jesus would pour himself out for, to give people value who were feeling devalued. And as followers of Jesus, that's our calling as well. So there's comparison as, as envy, there's comparison as pride, but there's the opposite problem of pride for many people. The way the comparison is active in their life is to actually give the sense of worthlessness. There are other people for which that when they actually look at other people's life, they actually feel so much less than people who have the opposite problem than that of pride. Their value is not bolstered by comparison, but it actually tears them down. There's many people I know in my own life, I've been in phases of this, where there's a script of negative self-worth. It's like this script that just keeps playing and comparison just strengthens that. The self-destruction that, that happens in are these mental loops that run over and over in our life. And then when we look at other people's life, it just, just spins these mental loops of just worthlessness over and over again. I'm not, I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not pretty enough. I'm not strong enough. And comparison just fuels this vortex, vortex of self-condemnation. Back to social media. Research now uh, over teenage lives, uh, teenage behavior, show that 
Negative body image and self-objectification are directly related to social media use. It's there's like, it's directly linked. In other words, the more our young people are on social media, the worse they feel about themselves and the worse they see in themselves. And when we believe these lies of comparison, and by the way, I don't think, I just think it's young people. I don't think it's just young people. I think it's many of us. But when we believe these lies of comparison, this is when shame steps in. The fear of being unworthy. And shame makes us feel small and unwanted and unloved. And we begin to measure our worth on the scales of this world and this culture. A Christian author, Ann Voskamp, said this, Scales always lie. They don't make a scale that has ever told the truth about value, about worth about significance. There's no scale that measures the soul. And the problem with comparison is that the Bible is full of examples of how this is so destructive. It's so destructive for the sense of purpose that God has given us. It's so destructive for the community of God's people. And it's destructive for our own souls. We're going to look at two examples of this. Uh, the power of comparison and how it's displayed in life. Uh, this is abundantly seen in the life of Saul. Saul was Israel's first king. Israel's first king was a man named Saul. And everything about Saul seemed royal. He was known to be tall and handsome, regal and noble. He became king when he was only 30 years old, as that's what it was estimated. And all was going well for Saul, but he had one pestering problem, and it was the Philistines. They kept attacking the nation of Israel, and especially there's the pestering problem of a man named Goliath. Goliath was a huge giant. Huge giant. He was loud. He was unconquerable. And comparison was actually at play because no one was willing to take on this giant. None of the, the men were willing to take on this giant Goliath until a small shepherd boy stepped up with a slingshot with some stones and his way of comparing himself to Goliath was different because he was actually comparing God's strength to Goliath's. And the story goes that the shepherd boy, David, he defeated the, the giant and was the inspiration for the entire kingdom. David went from one day obscurity to the national spotlight. He went from the shepherd's fields to the palace. Saul was so overwhelmed with gratitude that he actually moved David into his home, provided for his every need. He even gave him a rank in the military and gave him soldiers to follow. So furthermore, whatever, uh, furthermore, whatever Saul asked David to do, David would do it. He was faithful. He was loyal. And everything that David put his hand towards, God gave him favor. He was successful with it. But then things went south. At the end of one of his military endeavors, there was this victor's parade back into Jerusalem. And people came out to cheer on Saul in, in celebration. This is in 1 Samuel 18. The women came out from all of the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing, with dancing, with joyful songs, with timbrels and lyres. And as they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Oops. <laughs> okay, so what would a humble leader, what would a secure leader do in this moment? Hearing the singing and the praise and the worship of these people, the delight of these people, this humble 
secure leader might have waved David forward and said, come on, David, I want you to listen to this. Man, this is well-deserved. You have served me well. Take a bow. Take a bow. Well done, my good and faithful servant. A selfless leader could have relished in the success of someone who is faithfully serving the kingdom, the greater good. A secure leader would have seen and acknowledged that regardless if the numbers were in Saul's columns or David's columns, it was all a victory for Israel, for God's people. It's all a win. A humble leader would have seen this comparison trap and the words that was being sung, and, and they would, this humble leader would have said, I'm not going to fall for that today. But instead, Saul, he did. And this is what happened in verse 8. Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. <laughs> they have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me only with thousands? What more can he, being David, get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. And what is that close eye? That is the eye of comparison. That is the eye of envy, eye of jealousy. And on that day, a seed was planted in, David's, in Saul's mind and his heart that would wreak havoc. It would wreak havoc for his own life and for the kingdom. Just notice what happens in the very next verse in verse 10. That next day, an evil spirit from God came forcibly, forcefully on Saul. While David was playing the lyre as he usually did, Saul had a spear in his hand and hurled it, saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall. But David eluded him twice. Well, that escalated fast. <laughs> we know what that's like when this seed of jealousy is taken in. It's, all of a sudden, there's this evil spirit that's tormenting us. We, it becomes an obsession. We can't stop thinking about it, rolling things around in our minds. That's the evil spirit of comparison. And Saul went from inviting David into his very own home to and giving him authority to trying to kill him. This is the power of comparison. And it just gets worse and worse. From then on, Saul has a burning mission, an obsession to kill David. And everything falls apart around him. His attention from ruling this kingdom becomes dissolved. And his now his goal is, instead of protecting this kingdom, is to use the military to, to find and kill David. And David has to run for his life. Conflict erupts around his family. The other nations see this, and they actually begin attacking Israel. They neglect their borders, and they begin attacking Israel. And this seed of comparison grows, and it festers until finally Saul's own children are killed in battle, and Saul takes his own life. When we allow comparison to run rampant in our life, it will blind us from seeing clearly. It will derail the purpose that God has given us in our life and the plans that God has for us. And it will be incredibly destructive for those around us. I'm thankful for other examples in our scripture of how we can avoid and unsubscribe from the comparison trap and live in a different way. We find this in the life of John the Baptist. Before Jesus stepped into the public eye, John was baptizing people. He was really well known for being a prophet and outspoken leader in the nation of Israel. John was popular he was a known figure with many followers. But John was always saying, there's going to be someone who's going to be following me, a, a Messiah from which I am not even worthy to untie his shoes. And then one day Jesus steps forward and John uh, sees him and declares, behold the Lamb of God. And Jesus says, I need to be baptized by you. And 
John pushes back, and then John eventually obeys and baptizes Jesus, and Jesus is then off doing his public ministry. He steps into the public eye. And quickly thereafter, in John's gospel, one of John's disciples and students notice that their like, Instagram followers are going down. Uh, people aren't showing up to their events as much. And he's starting to look at John going, what's happened? And this is what happens in John 3, John 3, 26. They came to John and said, Rabbi, which is teacher, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he's baptizing and everyone is going to him. This is the trap of comparison that was laying, being laid out in front of John that day. He's saying, John, we used to be the big deal. People would come out to us, but not any longer. We're, we're losing our market. You've got to do something about this, or else we're going to lose everything. And John doesn't fall for that trap. This is what John says instead. Verse 27. A person can receive only what is given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I'm not the Messiah, but I am sent ahead of him. And then John says this. He must become greater. He, Jesus, must become greater. I must become less. John sidesteps comparison by knowing who he was by understanding, unlike Saul, that, that John, he was playing a supporting role in God's big, big story. And this story is not about John. Simply said, like this phrase, this almost sounds like a mantra, he must increase and I must decrease. My, the goal of my life is that Jesus' name would be made greater. And if that means that I'm not known, then so be it. That is my goal. He must increase and I must decrease. Someone could say, well, sure. Sure, John did that. I mean, this is with Jesus. So I don't have to comparison issues with Jesus, right? Sure, it would be easy. But it's, it's important for us to remember, how did John first meet Jesus? They were first cousins. And if there's any place where comparison like, runs most rampant, is it not with our families? I mean, I just feel like as an, having an older brother, I feel like my, half of my life was like, being at Six Flags with that little, little sign that says you have to be this tall to ride. And it was my brother. Like, I feel like he was always just a little bit, he was always a little bit more. This is the comparison that we have in our families. Are we measuring up? And this is John with, his, with a first cousin, Jesus. Do you not think that there was comparison going on between those sisters? John seems like a good boy, but um, it's not the Messiah. You know, he's just, I can imagine that, how that played out in that family. But John knew who he was. John knew that his value was not based on popularity of the masses or approval from the community. His value and, as we see in that, his joy. His joy was based on playing his part in God's bigger story. However much the spotlight was on him or off of him, his joy was playing that part in God's story and seeing Christ's name be made great in this community. I think actually when we look at John's life, we actually see how we can unsubscribe from the comparison trap in our life. I, I, this is really important because in this series, I don't want us to just grow more attentive to how these negative things are at play in our life. I want us to grow in how we can unsubscribe from these influences and practice different way of living that realign our heart towards God again. Practices that guard our heart so that we live fully and freely. 
So how do we combat comparison? How does John teach us how to unsubscribe from comparison? Well, first, our calling is to center our worth, begin our days by doing this, centering our worth and our identity on God. Your identity, your most fundamental identity is found in God. It's not found externally by whatever title you have. It's not found externally in your possessions or what's on your bank account, how many followers you have, your zip code. Your value is given by God. Therefore, we must, if we want to unsubscribe from this, we must begin our days remembering you are God's beloved. You've been chosen by God. You have been chosen by God. He knows you. He loves you. He sees you. He's heard every prayer that you've prayed. He's with you and he's for you. That is your value and your purpose. Why would we chase the approval of this world if we really believed and remembered that we've been chosen and purposed, known and seen and loved by God? I think John knew his, himself in the light of who God was so much that when this trap of comparison came to him on this day, he wasn't even tempted by it. The other thing we do is we need to learn to embrace the gift of limits. And for me, this phrase, gift of limits, is so countercultural for us. Because we're taught today that we can be anyone who we want to be. We can do anything we want to do. We can have anything we want to have. And I think in believing that, that comparison plagues us. Because if I can have anything, how come I don't have that? If I can be anything, how come, how come that person is that thing I want to be? I want that status. But if we believe that life is without limits, then I think we're going to be plagued by comparison. But there's a different way to see life. What if there's a gift to the limitations of our life? What if that, like actually having parameters in our life, if there's a gift to that, for us to be who God has called us to be, to pursue the purpose that God has for our life, John said these words to his disciple who laid the comparison trap for him in John 3, 27. A person can only receive, receive only what is given them from heaven. That's the limitations. John humbly accepted that role and the limitations that came with it. And this is part of maturity, to embrace the goodness of life within what we've been given. This body, these gifts, this family, this gift of singleness, whatever the limitations that you feel like are given to you, for us, the, the encouragement is not for us to just be complacent in life. Like, we are given agency and power and courage, but we also are called to seek and find life where we are within the limits that we have, to embrace our limits and to make the most of the gift of life that we've been given. There's a gift there's a gift of limits. And finally, the final way I think that we practice a way of unsubscribing from comparison is by gratitude. I think there's no greater way in which we unsubscribe from comparison, the trap of comparison, than that of gratitude. Like I said earlier, comparison is the thief of joy. It's a, that's a common saying. If this is true, I believe if comparison is the thief of joy, there might not be any better way to fight comparison than practicing gratitude, finding delight in the gift of life. When we have that tinge of envy, that jealousy, that comparison that creeps in, for us to look at the gift 
that's been given to us. When I drive back from my friend's home and I look at my home and go, man, God's been so good. I don't feel like I deserve this. Just like check ourselves in thinking uh, and, and, and observing the envy and jealousy that's robbing us to seeing clearly all the gifts that God's given us. For us, to practicing gratitude means that we have to consider a moment, in a moment where we feel like there's envy or jealousy creeping up, to, to call a time out and actually see what is, the, what is the gift that God has given me in this moment. For every opportunity to know and uh, to experience God's, God's gentleness and graciousness, even in my wounds, even in my vulnerability for me to stop and go, God, I feel really exposed and weak right now, but I thank you, God, that you are with me and for me. I'm grateful that I'm not left to fight this on my own. There are gifts within our days that we need to practice gratitude, and it's an incredible thing. Once we practice gratitude, our perspective begins to widen to see all that God has given us. And when we are plagued by comparison, it's like the capacity to see the gifts of life becomes more and more narrow. Instead of dealing with comparison, losing his status, this is what John said when his disciples saying, everyone's going to Jesus and not us. This is what, how John responded in verse 29. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. These people who you wish were following us, they belong to Jesus, not to me. I'm just the friend. I'm just the groomsman. I might even be worse than a groomsman. I might be an usher. It's like B-team in a wedding. I'm the usher. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and is now complete. My joy is full. It's at capacity. Why? Because Jesus is here and people are knowing who he is and they're following him, they're experiencing him. That is my joy. That is my joy. Instead of falling into the trap of comparison, John chose joy. Joy of being the usher and having the front row of the wedding to see Jesus and his people meet, to have that unity and love mark their life. That joy was John and it was complete. It was complete. And as we unsubscribe from comparison in our life, our attention, this is what will happen, our attention becomes more set on, uh, on a place of great significance. As we fix our gaze on Jesus, we begin to echo John's mantra, his phrase, he must increase and I must decrease. My prayer, Jesus, I wish this, this were true of every single day, that our, my prayer would be this, that you would be greater in my life, that you would increase, that you would increase in my attention increase in my affection, that you'd be greater in my priorities, that you would use my life to see your kingdom come in Austin as it is in heaven. And as we fix our perspective on Jesus, the most amazing thing happens. We begin to experience our worth and value more and more. And as Christ increases, so does his love for us so does the value that we experience in God's love and claim on your life. In that, in that place, we will finally have the freedom where we will unsubscribe from comparison. When we realize our value and worth is freely given us in Jesus. This world has nothing else to compare that to.